In the wilderness, we can feel alone. We can be surrounded by millions of people, and yet we feel alone in our anger, in our anxiety, in our depression, in our frustration, and in our fear. We can feel aggrieved by friends, unloved and uncared for by family, victimized by the world, and forgotten by God. And if we feel that that way long enough, soon we will feel desperate. And the worst thing for a desperate person to have is be surrounded by desperate people. The desperate people get together and you hear a grumbling or complaint and you get that glimmer of hope that says, oh yes, me too, samesies, the same. And instead of stopping and caring for one another and pointing one another to Jesus, we begin to feel alone together. That my neighbor's slights become my slights and my neighbor's fears become my fears. The lonely wilderness can become an echo chamber for desperate people. And a people, a desperate people, can soon be ready to take matters into their own hands. How long are you willing to wait in the wilderness? This is a good question. How long are you willing to wait in the wilderness? As we've gone through this wilderness series, we have heard from you and one another of We're in a wilderness. We're in a personal wilderness. How long are you willing to wait in that wilderness? Because some of you have been waiting a long time. You've been waiting for that pay raise or that job promotion that you feel you deserve. And you're ready to take matters in your own hands and are considering stealing or cheating or engaging in some unethical business practices. You've been waiting in a long time for your marriage to get good. For your spouse to love you in the way that you want and you're desperate and ready to have an affair or file for divorce. You've been waiting in your singleness for a long time and instead of looking to Christ to satisfy, you're ready to settle for a part-time lover. You've been waiting in your loneliness and isolation and your desperation for a long time that you are turning to pornography, alcohol, drugs, shopping, gossip, whatever it is that makes you feel in control of your life for just a moment. You've been waiting a long time, waiting so long that you've been in the darkness, so long that you don't know that the light exists and perhaps you're ready to end your life. You've been waiting, waiting to hear from God for so long that you're ready to turn your back on him for good. And maybe that's not you today, but maybe you've been there before or you're one or two decisions away from being there again, waiting in the wilderness. How long are you willing to wait? This is a hard question to ask, but an important one. Our passage this morning is Exodus chapter 32. It's the story of the golden calf. God's people had been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, We talked about this a couple weeks ago in Exodus 13 and 14 and 15. There's a praise song. They've been delivered from the hands of their enemies. They're in the wilderness. Last week we heard Chad talk about Exodus 16 where they're hungry in the wilderness. They have need and the Lord miraculously uh, meets their need. By the way, it is not a sin to be hungry. 
It's not a sin to have need. But the sin is meeting legitimate need in illegitimate ways. Legitimate needs of hunger and thirst. It's not a sin to be tempted, but it is a sin to go outside of God's boundaries to fulfill that need on our own. Sin is meeting legitimate needs in illegitimate ways outside of God's covenant. This is what he's teaching us in Exodus. And then Exodus 19, God calls Moses up on the mountains. And in Exodus 20, we get the Ten Commandments of God entering into a covenant relationship through the law with his people. And they build an altar and they worship him. And in Exodus 21 through 23 are some more laws. And in Exodus 24 is God's people agreeing to this covenant We will do the word of the Lord, 24.3 and 24.7. We will obey these commandments. God is their people, and they will worship him and agree to be obedient to the law. And then Exodus 25 to 31 is a conversation between God and Moses about how God is going to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. The specifics of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, the bronze basin, all of these things, the specific dimensions and materials they're supposed to use about how God is going to dwell with his people in the wilderness. God is making plans to be with his people. And the people couldn't wait. And not in the I can't wait, but in the they could not wait. And they committed an act of idolatry. Exodus chapter 32. This is a drama in five acts. And act number one is a desperate act. Read with me, Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt... We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They'd been in the wilderness for a little over three months. And we don't know exactly how long, but Moses was up on the mountains, was going to be for 40 days. And while up there, the people couldn't wait. And they committed an act of idolatry. Can't wait anymore. Aaron, up. Make us gods. Make us gods. If you're wondering, uh, it hadn't been too long since they had heard the Ten Commandments. You're right. Because of the Ten Commandments, number one is don't make any other gods. And they broke it. The first thing we see the people do after getting the Ten Commandments, well, the first one is worship. And then they had to wait a minute. And then they broke the first one. Don't make any other gods and they break it. They couldn't wait. They went outside of God's boundaries to fulfill their need themselves in an act of desperation. They said, up, make us gods. And Aaron asked them for gold. Where did this gold come from? Let's follow the money for a minute. Where did this gold come from? It came from the Egyptians. God, when he called Moses in Exodus chapter 3, says, you're going to uh, take my people out of Egypt, and on your way out, I'm going to give you favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they're going to give you their gold. 
You're going to plunder the Egyptians. And Exodus chapter 12, it happens that way because these were slaves. They weren't in the habit of keeping gold around, right? And so on the way out, they get gold from the Egyptians. Why would God give them gold? He gave them gold for the tabernacle. He gave them gold so that the Ark of the Covenant, which was to be gilded in gold, they would have something to worship God with. That the mercy seat had to be solid gold and the golden lampstands and the decorations for the table. The gold God gave them was to be used for his worship. And they squandered it on a God of their own design. Not even a good God, a good idol, not even a cool idol. It was unoriginal. It was exactly what the Egyptians worshipped. They worshipped bulls and cows. They were the ones who uh, marveled at their strength and worshipped them. In the heart of the Israelites, they longed to be back in Egypt. They longed to be back in slavery and oppression because that's the gods that they designed themselves to worship. They took the gold that God had given them and they made their own idol. Idolatry chases the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. In the prophet Hosea, we get the picture through his prophecy and through his life of Hosea, a prophet who was a faithful husband and his wife who was adulterous. We get this really sad story of the husband who bought beautiful clothing and jewels for his wife and she walks to the marketplace and says, look at what my lover has given to me. How often do we take what God has given us and say, look what I can do. Look what I've done. This is what the Israelites did. They took what God had meant for his worship and they made an idol out of it. Up, make us God's. And then uh, we see in verse 4, them saying aloud, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They just said a couple sentences prior that Moses brought them out of Egypt, and now they're trying to convince themselves of the lie that they have created. Then Aaron saw this and built an altar before it. Aaron, the priest who was in charge, who should have known better, and says, let's make a feast day to the Lord. If you're a little confused that the Lord is capitalized for the name of Yahweh, uh, that's understandable. Aaron is now committing uh, sin number two, breaking commandment number two of thou shalt carve no images. That our God is an omnipresent God, and we do not make an image, a likeness of him, and put him in a temple to be worshipped. Brother, he's with us everywhere. So the first two acts we see in Exodus uh, 32 are breaking commandment number one and breaking commandment number two. A bit of syncretism on Aaron's part to try to mix it all together. And the acts that they use to worship this God are the acts that they're supposed to use to worship Yahweh, Almighty God, who delivered them from the hands of their enemies. It's sad and it's disgusting. If comedy is tragedy plus distance, this is a dark tragedy. But I don't know that it's enough distance for us to laugh at because when I read this closely, I realize this is kind of me sometimes. If action number one is an act, a desperate act, then act number two is a desperate prayer. Verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, 
who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. An omnipresent God, an all-knowing God sees what's happening at the base of Mount Sinai and tells Moses who he's meeting with about what has happened. He said, this people, I have seen this people, which is the same thing they said about this Moses. It's good writing. This people, it is a stiff-necked people. What a beautiful illustration, a stiff-necked people. That's great language, that your neck couldn't move, you were stiff. Play a game with me. I would like to see a group of stiff-necked people. So everyone, if you would, show me a stiff neck, and with a stiff neck, turn to your neighbors and say, I hate when preachers do this. Go ahead. Turn. I hate when... Good. Good. And turn to your neighbor on the other side and say, he's made his point. This is redundant. Go ahead. I'll wait. (laughs) A stiff-necked people. A people who can only see directly what's in front of them. Who can't see anything else going on around them. The frustration of this act is that while Moses is up on the mountain, he is getting God's instructions on how God is going to meet with his people. And the people are right in God's will. They are right in God's will and he's making plans to meet with them and they couldn't wait. It's remarkably frustrating for this stiff-necked people, like a stiff-necked animal who would not bow his head to take on the harness or the yoke, but with stiff-necked, prideful, stubborn. They are a stiff-necked people. And we, if we are honest with ourselves, are stiff-necked people, stiff-necked, desperate people. And God says, Moses, go down. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to make a great nation of you. And for Moses, this is a moment here. Because he says he's going to make a great nation out of Moses. And so he kind of has a minute where he has to think, you know, no longer would this nation be called sons of Abraham or Israelites. These can be Mosesites, sons of Moses. But Moses doesn't do that. Moses responds to God in prayer, saying, But Moses implored the Lord, this is verse 11, implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses gives a desperate prayer A desperate prayer. He says, God, you can't do this. He appeals to many aspects of God. He's, you've been with us too long. And for the sake of the Egyptians, just so they're not laughing at us after you've brought us out only to kill us in the wilderness, don't do it. And remember, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you made a promise that you swore on yourself, God, and you were a faithful God, so you can't do this thing. He calls out to the covenant that they have with Abraham and says, you can't. You can't do this thing. And the Lord relents. This shows us many things, one of which is the power of prayer. 
The power of prayer that Moses gives a desperate prayer and the Lord relents. Now, there's two schools of thought here, and we don't have time to get into it, but either God was going to do this and Moses' prayer changed his mind, that's certainly one, or the Lord was never going to do this, but was rather revealing his right to do this and his justice and ability to do this, which drove Moses to prayer, which he was faithful in doing. That's possible, yes. But either way, we see Moses praying a prayer of desperation and the Lord, kind and loving as he is, relents. And then Moses come down, comes down from the mountain. Verse 15. This is act three, a desperate defense. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses comes down from the mountain. The first thing he does is he takes the covenant, which was written by the hand of God, and he smashes it in front of them to show them what they have done, that you have broken the covenant that you agreed to with God. And then he goes and takes this calf and grinds it down and melts it and makes the people drink it. This is medieval. This is actually pre-pre-pre-medieval shame and punishment. But this is dark, making the people drink the God that they themselves had created to worship. It says that Moses' anger burned hot, which is the same words that God used to describe his anger, which shows that it's a a holy, just, righteous anger. This is not uh, Moses losing his temper as he was wont to do from time to time, but this is a holy anger. And then Moses turns to Aaron and says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Aaron is not the friend you want when you're in trouble. Aaron squirms, dodges. You can imagine the interrogation of the light overhead and Aaron having to give his defense. I'd like to do a little bit of what I call um, theatrical exegesis, Charlie. Moses, bro, my brother, my lord. You look stupid when you're angry. You look dumb. The whole making us drink gold thing, that was, that was ridiculous. You didn't have to go that far. Look, relax. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Okay, it's a little idolatry. It's a little idolatry, but it's these people. These people are evil. These people are evil. You know these people. It's their fault. And 
So they said, I'll make us gods. Moses has been gone forever. And you were a god a long time, bro. You were up there a long time. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever. Take some gold if you have any. And they had some. And so I threw it in the fire and out came a calf. It was miraculous. It was amazing. You should have been here, but you weren't. Honestly, it's not a big deal. Relax and scene. Thank you. Thank you. That was, yes, yes, that was Aaron's defense. I'm workshopping it. I may take it on the road. We'll see. Aaron looks foolish here, and rightly so. If ever we wanted a picture of bad leadership. But Aaron does what all of us do when we are confronted with our sin. He passes the buck. He deflects. First he says, he's, don't let um, your anger burn hot. Don't get so upset. It's not a big deal. He minimizes, it's not a big deal. And then he says, these people, they're awful. Don't leave me with them, these people, it's their fault. And then lastly, he says, okay, some idolatry took place, but it was accidental. One thing led to another. What was I supposed to do? We can laugh at him, but we can't laugh too hard. You know what I'm saying? Because when I'm confronted with my sin, I find myself checking off every box that Aaron checks off because this is what happens when we're confronted our sin. The same thing happens in the Garden of Eden. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. It wasn't our fault. It's not a big deal. It's sad. Aaron should have known better. And yet as sinful, fallible humans, this is the patterns we find ourselves in, especially in the wilderness. Act 4 a measure of justice. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Moses calls those who are in the service of the Lord and the sons of Levi come out from the tribe of Levi, which was Moses' own tribe. He says, take your swords and 3,000 people die. I confess to you that when I read this passage and passages like it, I get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable because the God of my own design, I I think should forgive him. I don't like all this death. I say, can you just forgive him? But it's, any misunderstanding of this passage and ones like it, show our deep misunderstanding of the wickedness of idolatry, the wickedness of sin, the slander and scandal of covenant breaking. That this is truly just a measure of justice because God was going to wipe out all two million plus of them. And so comparatively, 3,000 isn't bad. That number 3,000 comes to us again in Scripture, that on this day, 3,000 people fell. And then at the Pentecost, when the Spirit came out and the church really began in earnest, it said 3,000 people came to know the Lord that day and joined the church, that throughout redemptive history, God is going to restore us, that he is going to take what is broken and he's going to restore it. It's a beautiful picture. I can't be too uncomfortable with this because God's anger and his wrath has to be satisfied 
And that w- idolatry is truly wicked. And God has every right to do this. And it's an act of, of justice, the not ev- uh, act of grace, that not everybody is killed. Acts number five, a hope for atonement. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses goes up and asks God to forgive them of their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. This is either one of two books. It's either the book of those who are living, like the census that a king or a leader would have written down the names of all the people in his kingdom. And he's saying, blot me out of your book. You can take my life. You can kill me on behalf of these people. Or perhaps it's the book of life that we hear about, that John writes about in Revelation, the book of life of those who will dwell with God forever. Perhaps he's saying, you can blot me out of that book. I will experience death and damnation for the sake of these people. That Moses is willing to die for the salvation of his people. He's willing to die. He can't. He cannot be a savior for his people. God says to him specifically, uh, he can't be a savior because Moses is a, a fallible human. God says to him, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. God had plans for Moses, and he could not be a savior. He was sinful himself, and he could not die for the sins of the people, and he was to go and lead them into the promised land. But while Moses could not be a savior, this points us to the true and better Moses, Jesus Christ, who could pay the penalty for our sin, who could die on the cross, who could experience hell so that we don't have to, who could be raised again, defeating death on the third day so that we can live with him forever, who he himself will usher us into our promised land to dwell with God forever and ever. There is a hope for atonement in the wilderness in light of our sin. That the punishment that should be for all the people that that God's wrath, which has to be met, is satisfied in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That true and better Moses of Jesus Christ is going to lead his people. That he is here with us now, dwelling with us, that we don't need the tabernacle any longer, but the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. For those who are in the wilderness, those who are desperate in the wilderness, this is good news. This is good news that we can turn to a revealed Savior in Jesus Christ and know he is with us. There's a proverb, Proverbs 29, 18, which I think beautifully captures the story of the golden calf. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish, but blessed are those who keep the law. Where there is no vision, this is the Hebrew word chazon. It means a prophetic vision, a revelation of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. This vision is the same word that's used in the prophecy of Isaiah or Ezekiel, a vision from God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. 
This is a great Hebrew word, yippara. Yippara. I spent a lot of money in seminary, so I want to use these words when I can. Yippara. Yippara mostly talks about in the Old Testament, it talks about hair. And the hair of the priest specifically, they had to be pulled back, no bumps or wispies when they went in to do the work of the Lord. Wispies. I didn't know that word until I was married. I didn't know it was a word. <laughs> the word yippara shows up in this, in this chapter. And Moses saw that the people had broken loose. They had yippara. They had forgotten the vision of the Lord. But blessed are those who keep the law. The blessed are those who remember the vision, the revelation of God, because the law was a revelation of God, a revelation of who God was, that God is a holy God, that God is a jealous God, that we cannot worship other gods, that we cannot uh, carve idols, that we don't use his name in vain, that we keep the Sabbath day only. He's an honorable God, so we honor our parents. He's an honest God, so we don't lie. He's a God who values life, so we don't kill. He's a God who honors uh, being content, and so we do not covet, and we do not steal. It reveals about God, the law does, the covenant. God goes on to reveal himself through the prophets, calling people back to himself, calling God's, uh, God's people who are stuck in idolatry. He calls God's people back to himself, restoring them. Blessed are those who keep the law. God reveals himself again in Jesus Christ. He reveals himself through a new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. He reveals himself not through words, but through the word, that God became man, Emmanuel, and dwelt among us, that we don't need a tabernacle or a temple, but his Holy Spirit dwells in our heart. And we who are desperate forget. We get tired of waiting. We say, I deserve this thing that I want. I deserve this. And we get tired of waiting for God to provide for us. And we take matters into our own hands. To you who are in the wilderness now, to you who are wandering in the wilderness, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. This is not some glib good idea that we walk out of service today, say, do better, don't do that bad thing you were going to do. Because we are broken people who are going to be bent towards our sin. And I'm encouraging you to please keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Jesus who is revealed of God's will, who is the full revelation of God. And that one day because of Jesus, we will see God face to face in all his glory and all his splendor. To you desperate people in the wilderness, may the vision of your heart, may the vision of your life be that of Jesus Christ, no longer looking to self or idols or gods of your own making, but keep your eyes on your Savior. Remember the, his vision, his revelation for you, because chances are you are right in God's will, that though you feel alone and though you feel desperate, you are right in God's will, and he's asking you to wait because he's making plans to dwell with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word revealed as scripture, your word to us, to encourage us. Father, to those who are desperate this morning that can't go any longer in the wilderness and are ready to give up, Father, give us, give us grace, give us mercy, give us strength. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Don't let us forget Forget the covenant that you made with us. Don't let us forget the word and the hope that we have, but rather 
through the power of your Holy Spirit and because of Jesus Christ, may we keep our eyes on you. In his name we pray, amen.